0: This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Nonagenarians are becoming increasingly popular. And the latest one to be ratcheted up to rock star status, especially in the school choice community, is Thomas Sowell. With the publication of his book in 2020, Charter Schools and Their Enemies, he has given the choice movement a shot in the arm at the precise moment when the movement seemed to have lost direction. Sowell has published many books on economics and culture, and he's entered boldly into the hottest issues of our times, affirmative action, teacher union power, slavery, reparations uh, for African-Americans, welfare policy, and much more. But the latest book is not by Thomas Sowell, but about him. He's quite a private man, and he's not a person that everybody knows except those who read his books and his newspaper columns. But Jason Riley, a journalist for The Wall Street Journal, has found a way to let us get to know both the personality and the professional side of Thomas Sowell in his new book entitled Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. Soon to be released uh, by Basic Books. I think it's going to be out the day after this podcast goes live. And I've had the opportunity to see the page proofs of this remarkable new book. And I'm delighted to have with me today Jason Riley on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Jason, for joining me. Thank you for having me, Paul. So, Jason, throughout most of his life, Thomas Sowell has been ignored by much of the media. But you're a journalist, and you really write about things that media people are interested in. So why did you write a book about Thomas Sowell?
1: Well, uh, for a couple reasons. The first reason was uh, personal. Um, uh, He's someone who has had a tremendous impact on my uh, uh, own thinking about many of the issues he's written about throughout his career. Um, He's someone I discovered Uh, in college uh, in the early 1990s. I uh, worked on the school paper and uh, sitting around with some of my colleagues one afternoon and uh, talking about affirmative action. And someone said, Jason, you sound like Tom Soule. And I said, who's that? And uh, the person wrote down the name of a book um, that Soule had had published in the, in the early 1980s and I went to the library at school and checked it out and read it in one sitting and, and went back the next day and, and checked out the rest of the school's Thomas Sowell collection and have been hooked ever since. Um, and after I started working at um, the Wall Street Journal in the mid 1990s, I, I got a chance to meet him in person. He would come through New York and uh, on book tours typically. And I was on uh, the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal and he would meet with various editorial pages on his book tours. And so I got a chance to to meet him in the mid nineties for the first time. And then I went out to to see him to do a longer profile of him for the newspaper in the mid 2000s. And that's when we really uh, sort of struck up a, an acquaintance that has, has endured. And um, it's been a while. I, I had uh, been on his case a little bit about letting me write uh, the biography. I was surprised to know he didn't have a biographer and thought he should have one and and he was quite reluctant at first but he's, he's going to be 91 years old uh in June so maybe I just wore him down and he finally finally agreed to, to uh to sit for some long interviews uh for the book. He was very gracious with his time um but the, the second reason I wanted to write it is 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 as you referenced in your remarks, he's—he's. He's, I don't believe he's as well known as he should be. Um, I, I think it's frankly a travesty that more people know who say ta Coates is, or Ibram Kendi, or Nicole Hannah-Jones, or Cornel West, or Henry Louis Gates, uh, and don't know who Thomas Sowell is, someone who I think has not only written circles around those individuals in terms of uh, his wide-ranging scholarship, but also the depth and rigor of his thinking in, in the topics that he has covered, I think leaves, uh, uh, leaves those others in the dust. And, and so um, I, I, I'm hoping that this book, along with a uh, documentary film that, for public television that I narrated recently, will um, help introduce uh, you know, a younger generation in particular to Seoul, but more, just more people in general
0: so Jason, you talk about your your the movie or the film you did uh, was entitled uh, Thomas Sowell, Common Sense in a Senseless World, and and I've uh, looked at that film, and it's very good. It's on Netflix, I think, isn't it? I I, I
1: believe it's on uh, YouTube, on Amazon Prime, um, and it's also aired on public television stations uh, locally around around the country. So there are a number of places uh that you can find it yes
0: well you know i i i think about this as a little bit like i think about huck finn i've seen the movie of huck finn but i've read the book and the book is better than the movie so (laughs) that's what i think is the case here uh uh but what, what do you think do you think the 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 book is uh at least for those who want an in-depth look at it, isn't it better than the than the film? Oh, well, certainly. I, I mean, the the, the film focuses a, a
1: lot on on education. Frankly, I do so in the book as well. But the film is particularly focused on uh, on on Tom's education. We we shot some scenes at the University of Chicago where he earned his Ph.D. in economics, studying under Milton Friedman. Um, shot some uh, some footage in Harlem where he where he grew up in the 1940s. Um uh, so it's really focused on on education. Um, the, the book is is more wide ranging, obviously. Uh, I, I focus on on many aspects of his scholarship, uh, including his writings on economic history, um, uh, which was his first love. And on his teaching career in the 1960s and 70s. Classroom teaching was also his, his first love. And I think um, his experience teaching at Cornell in the 19, in the late 1960s when they had the, the student protests there, Kind of soured him on on teaching, and I think that's one of the reasons he ultimately left for the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where where, where he currently is. Um, but you asked why why more people don't know about him, and I think one of the reasons is that um, he was sort of a canceled before we use that that term to to talk about what happens to people who say politically incorrect things or things that. Um, uh, that that uh, the mainstream media and, and others don't want to hear and and souls writings on racial controversies in particular. Uh, have gotten him in trouble with this crowd dating all the way back to the late 1960s and early 70s and, as you know, you know it's really the uh, the, the liberals the political left that not only control academia. But control foundations and control the uh, committees that, that hand out awards and so forth. And they've sort of ostracized uh, Thomas Sowell. And, 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 I, and I think um, uh, the black left in particular has made him a uh, uh, persona non grata, someone you do not go to, uh, to, 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 to learn about uh, uh, these issues involving uh, race and ethnicity and culture and so forth, that he is not um, someone who should be taken seriously. And so I, I, I'm hoping that both the book and the movie can can draw more attention to um, to Sol's work because we're still talking about a lot of the issues he, he's covered from social justice to affirmative action and and, and reparations and, and and educational choice and all the rest.
0: So he he's a serious man. He writes about serious questions, but he does have a sense of humor. And there's a couple of his sayings that I I find especially uh, telling. Um, he, he said something, I don't have the exact quotes here, but he says, you know, you can help people by telling them, you do help people, you do help people by telling them what they need to know. You please people by telling them what they want to hear. And I thought that's a lot of what he, and you just said that right now, you know, the media tells people what they want to hear but you really help people by telling them what they need to know. I mean, you have any thoughts on that?
1: That's what he has spent a career doing. And, and unfortunately um, that can get you into a lot of trouble. You know, one, one of the ways uh, I think that that Tom has really distinguished himself as a public intellectual is simply by being a straight shooter, by simply following the facts where they lead and, and uh, reporting the conclusions, regardless of whether those are popular conclusions or politically incorrect conclusions and so forth. And today, that makes you a standout. Uh, there, there are just so many intellectuals and scholars who are far more interested in being politically incorrect or being popular or or or, or offering the, the the faddish thinking of the time than in telling it like it is. And Seoul has refused to, sort of play footsie with that crowd over the decades. And I think it's cost him somewhat professionally.
0: There's another saying uh, that is uh, really great, I think. And that's, he says, the first law of economics is scarcity. There's never enough of anything to go around so everybody can have what they want. And the second, and the first law of politics is to ignore the first law of economics. And being <laughs> a political scientist, I just love that particular quote.
1: Yeah, that that's that's, I think, um, of a piece with his his larger view of how how different groups uh, view the world and, and view the problems that that we face in, in society and on the one hand you have a group that um, you know assumes uh, in the normal course of events uh, the natural way things should be that that we would you, you would see proportionality and outcomes by race and ethnicity and gender when it comes to employment or Or educational achievement or incomes and so forth. And and then um, they they spend their time uh, trying to find bad actors who have disrupted this natural state as they see it. And Tom has said there's another group of people and, and he's in this group who has a much more constrained view of human nature and humanity and people who have looked at societies down through history do not find this these equal outcomes that are supposed to be held up that, that are held up as normal. Um, nowhere do you find them. Not in the U.S. Not outside of the U.S. Not today. Not a hundred years ago. Not five hundred years ago. Um, do you do you find societies where you see proportionate outcomes in income and educational achievement and professions and so forth? And uh, they're just two very different ways of looking at the world. Uh, and 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 one is. Uh, Thinks you know everyone can have everything, and the other one says no. There are, there are certain constraints, and there are trade-offs to be had. Um, uh, there are no real solutions, just trade-offs.
0: Yeah, no, he has a tragic sense of. Um... Of mankind or person kind, I guess I should say uh, these days. But um, but you he would know, he would and,
1: never he would never be caught dead saying person kind. I, can, I I don't like to put words in Tom's mouth, but I can be pretty sure about that.
0: <laughs> now he probably his tragic sense is due in some ways to his his early years. I mean, he was born in rural North Carolina. He becomes an orphan at a very early age. Uh, he's raised by his great aunt, but he ends up in New York City in Harlem, I uh, either in elementary school. So how does this happen? How does the, uh, that's one thing that's not really told in the book that I, I thought I'd ask you about.
1: Well, Tom was, you know, he was a bright student. He was a bright kid. Um, um... Uh, there's there's no doubt about that and it was evident at a very at a very young age. Um, uh, he was always uh, on the on the bright side. Um, um, you're asking how he ended up in Harlem.
0: Yeah, how did the family. It was, well, that,
1: that was just Paul that was just part of the, the, the great migration of, of millions of black Americans out of the south at the time. Um, uh, that's what was happening. Uh, that was one of the, uh, the that at that period you had millions of blacks, um, either moving from uh, rural areas to urban areas um, uh, in the South, or moving out of the South completely to urban environments in the North. So you see, you know Chicago, St. Louis, uh, um, Cleveland, Detroit, New York, and so forth. And so uh, he ended up. His family ended up in 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 Harlem, um, where he was. Um, Where he was raised
0: from about the age of of eight or nine, and he had a great grade school teacher, Uh, but then when he went to middle school or something like that, the first encounter he had was probably with a pretty rotten school, but he got out of it somehow, Uh, and I think that's part of his passion for charter schools today is that 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 turning point in his life.
1: Yes, it it is uh, a part of the 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 reason he is he has been a strong supporter of. of school choice, he was ever able to exercise it as a child himself. He, um, uh, there was a family friend he uh, became acquainted with after moving to Harlem, who who told Tom that he could transfer out of the middle school that he had been assigned to, and uh, and Tom promptly did that and ended up in a much in a much better school as a result. And um, yeah, that that has certainly stuck with him um, uh, over the years. That his ability to do that,
0: but he was a Marxist in his early days. Maybe lots of people are Marxists in their early days. Uh, but- uh, Well, I don't, know. I, don't, I don't know if lots of people are But Marxists. even Milton Friedman didn't talk him out of Marxism. Well, well, well they're-, they're, they're
1: I don't know if, if, if Friedman was ever a Marxist, but but Tom has pointed out that uh, um, uh, conservatives today uh, were, were on the left in their youth. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan, Milton Friedman, George Stigler, Uh, You're you're sort of uh, William F. Buckley's and George Wills are the exception, not the rule when it comes to uh, 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 many, many uh, conservatives today. Um, So Tom is among them. I will point out, it's it's interesting that a lot of uh, Black conservatives, however, not only started out on the left, but started out on the far left. Uh, Clarence Thomas was a Black Panther. Uh, Walter Williams was a uh, uh much more sympathetic to the views of Malcolm X than he was to the views of Martin Luther King for example uh Shelby Steele another uh far leftist in his youth so uh it is interesting that you 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 uh, among black conservatives in particular it's not just that they start off slightly left of center but oftentimes on the radical left and Tom was was certainly in that group and it's it's not surprising you know Tom has uh talked about how marxism explained the world around him at the time growing up he he grew up in the tenements in harlem in in the 1940s um i mean uh, he was surrounded uh by a lot of poor people and the community however was not that far away from other communities that were much much wealthier and and, and marxism sort of explained why that was in uh to
0: him you had to walk down east side to get to the library to the the New York Public Library, which is where I think he got a lot of uh, uh, learning when he was a boy, he got there by going through. I assume walking down the East Side, which is a pretty wealthy part of town. Well, well, there, there was a library up in Harlem that he would visit,
1: so he didn't he didn't need to go to um, to the library in Midtown. But where where he has talked about noticing these changing neighborhoods is that uh, as as a teenager after he dropped out of out of high school. Uh, he worked as a messenger for Western Union down in the Wall Street district, which is which is at the southern tip of Manhattan, whereas Harlem is in the northern part of Manhattan. And sometimes he would take a bus home from work, and there he would travel uh, up the city and notice the changing neighborhoods. On you know the wealthy areas like Riverside Drive, he'd go past he'd go past Carnegie Hall and so forth, and the expensive shops on Fifth Avenue and so forth. And that's where he noticed these changes. And he would say, you know, Marx explained this uh, in a way that I found um, very persuasive. And, and it's interesting that he he clung to his Marxism uh, throughout his studies at Harvard, even after studying under Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago, Tom was still a Marxist. It was It wasn't until he took a job in government that he uh, began to abandon his his Marxism, where he got some firsthand experience at at seeing how the government has its own agenda, and 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 oftentimes that agenda um, uh, is at odds with what might thus help uh, underprivileged people in particular.
0: He was uh, in the Department of Labor, wasn't he? He was in the
1: Department of Labor and he was studying minimum wage laws and their effects on on uh, on low income individuals. And he he began by thinking that this was a way to help the poor uh, but he soon realized that uh, that came at the cost of, of employment for, for many people. Uh, jobs were being lost if people became too expensive to hire. And so he began to change his views and reevaluate both Marxism and, and just government programs in general, uh, particularly government programs aimed at helping uh, disadvantaged minorities.
0: Well, a lot of the Chicago School, and he's considered part of the Chicago School of economics. Uh, a, a lot of these people are Nobel Prize winners, and 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 you can identify a certain idea associated with them: Milton Friedman and monetarism, Gary Becker and the theory, economic theory of marriage and the family. So, what do you say is the core to Thomas Sowell's thinking? What's his distinctive contribution? If you're t- to give him a Nobel prize, what do you give it to him for? <laughs>
1: um, I, I think Tom uh, sees himself as sort of uh, continuing the work of people like uh, uh, Becker, who was a student. Uh, he was a student of Becker's, not at, uh, at Chicago, but at Columbia. Becker was a professor at Columbia before he, uh, 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 moved to Chicago and, and and Tom took his course there. Um, but, but Becker's work on human capital in particular and the importance of human capital. Tom is a very uh, big believer in uh, culture and how uh, a, a group needs to develop the right uh, attitudes and skills and behaviors in order to rise in society. And that if that group does that, it, it, it doesn't much matter what larger society thinks about them, or even if the larger society wants to, to discriminate against them. He's come up with example after example, the world over from the uh, you know, the ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia, to uh, uh, the Jews in, 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 in Eastern Europe and, and, and uh, the Japanese in America and elsewhere, groups that were uh, discriminated against, kept out of certain professions, Um, Not allowed to own land in the case of Japanese in California for a period of time, and yet managed uh, not only to rise uh, economically, but to surpass the very groups that had discriminated against them in terms of income and and, and, and in terms of educational achievement and so forth. And Tom attributes that to the human, the development of human capital, which he thinks is so essential uh, uh, to a group. Um, so I, I think he's really, his work on that in that area, I think is, uh, has, has been um, uh, quite remarkable.
0: So what are the core cultural characteristics then that he sees as uh, crucial for the uh, development of human capital?
1: Well, the right attitudes, I think, is, is, is one thing. And those are the attitudes, um, you know, toward, toward marriage, towards child rearing, towards education. Um, toward the rule of law. Um, uh, those are key, you know, and, and, and groups that don't develop them are, are going to lag economically, uh, particularly in a, in a free market capitalist society like ours. And, and not all groups that came here um, had those at the outset. Um, you know, there, there, there's a reason they're called paddy wagons. <laughs> and it's because there was a time when uh, Irish Americans were overrepresented, largely overrepresented among um, uh, criminals and people in trouble with the law. Um, that's changed over uh, the course of time as uh, institutions like the Catholic Church and others, uh, benevolent societies and others uh, helped change Irish culture. and and uh, uh, it's interesting that, you know today, instead of uh, calling on, on on groups to change their behavior, um, we want to uh, you know change the laws addressing that behavior to accommodate the group. <laughs> I mean, no, no, one, no one decided to make the Irish behavior that was getting them in trouble legal <laughs> and, and to address it that way. Yet today you see this this move to to legalize, Certain behaviors, <laughs> aberrant behaviors, in order to accommodate certain groups.
0: Well, we did abolish uh, 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 prohibition, right? There was a little of this was prohibition, uh, and there there was a modification in to the accommodate the Irish, perhaps.
1: But but behaviors and attitudes, I think, um, would rank very high on 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 Soul's list of, of the type of human capital that is going to help uh, help a group
0: advance. So let's talk about uh, his, his latest book on charter schools. Uh, What, what do you, what motivated him to write this book and uh, what kind of impact do you think it's having? Well, I don't, I don't know what kind of impact it's having.
1: I mean, um, we're, we're, I, I, you know, the, the COVID situation um, and, and, and how it impacted schooling and, and families, um, you know, I'm I'm hoping one of the positive things that can come out of this is is is, is for the public to to reevaluate just how much uh, power uh, the the teachers unions have over our schools and and by extension over our lives and whether that's that's a good thing or not or or, or maybe we should rethink uh, re- re- rethink that arrangement. Uh, and 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 Sol's book, you know, points out, uh, uh, you know, why why school choice is so important. And I think uh, the pandemic has also pointed out why school choice is so so important. Certain school systems and certain ways of teaching uh, 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 you know, worked better than others during during the crisis. Um, um, the reason I think he wrote the book is because uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there about charter schools and 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 why they're successful or whether they're successful and and uh tom wanted to 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 point out what was wrong with a lot of these of these arguments i mean the book is called charter schools and their enemies and what he's doing is he's taking on um many of the arguments that that have been made over the decades about charter schools and i and i think he does you know a brilliant job one of the this is sort of uh this is this is uh the purest form of of, of Thomas Sowell and some of these arguments that he makes. I I mean, I I, I recall in in one part of the book, he talks about how one of the arguments against charter schools is that they don't do much better than traditional public schools um, or that many of them don't do much better than traditional public schools. And Tom says, wait a minute, let's think about that right now. He says um, uh, in many districts, you have uh, traditional public schools dominated by white students and Asian students. Whereas you have charter schools dominated by black and Hispanic students. If you are now saying that the charter schools basically do no better than traditional public schools, do you know what you're saying? You are saying that uh, these white and Asian students that have been outperforming blacks and Hispanics on, on, on tests for decades have now been caught by uh, the black and Hispanic students. Um, uh, so, so just conceding that the, these charter schools do no better is in fact uh, acknowledging just what an outstanding job these charter schools have done. And to me, that is essential Tom. soul. You don't, you don't hear that argument framed that way or at least I don't very often, but but um, that's that's the type of
0: analysis. Well, the make. only person who I've heard say something like that is Caroline Huxby, who is a colleague of Tom Soules out here <laughs> yeah. at Hoover. And uh, he says, uh, she said, that, well, she did this research and she found out that at the charter schools, the performance by the time they got to eighth grade was equivalent to Scarsdale. So she says, yeah. yeah. That, so this is pretty good you know this is a pretty amazing and and she does point out if the kids in harlem can do as well as the kids in in scarsdale and they, and i think he picks up on that perhaps because that her her research was out there so it wasn't like he just made this up uh, no definitely by observation you know he i think he picked this up in part um in that way so uh so what do you think is he going to break out do you think that his time is sometimes people at the very end of their lives become appreciated in ways they never were uh as they uh, yeah, even Mozart was never appreciated until uh after he had left us so is is tom soul going to come into his own yet
1: oh i, I it's it's hard it's hard to, to know um you know, I, I I think that uh, he's got a body of work out there that um, will be difficult to ignore as as these topics are discussed going forward, long after he's gone. Um, uh, I, I think the, the the power of his arguments um, are such that uh, people will have to grapple with what he's what he's been saying. Um, when when that time will come, you know, I I, I don't know. Uh, we're we're uh, we're at a time now, I think, where sort of this progressivism is ascendant uh, once again, and um, um, I think it's as good a time as ever to look back at what what Saul has written about these things and issues like social justice um, and, and critical race theory and 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 that sort of thing because he has weighed in and he's still right. Uh, in his uh, in his analysis of of of, uh, of of where these ideas come from and where they lead to, uh, taken to their logical conclusion. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I I am encouraged by um, the interest among young people in his work. You know, he 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 has um, a fan account on Twitter that currently has more than seven hundred thousand followers. Um, it's run by a guy uh, who's never met Thomas Sowell, um, uh, a millennial from the Midwest. And um, all he does, all this guy does is is post quotes from old Thomas Sowell books and previous columns. Uh, he doesn't add any comments to these quotes. He just posts them. And uh, it, it's gained an uh, excess of 100,000 followers a year since he started doing it. and. Um, uh, I was also encouraged by the fact that the documentary film uh, that I narrated, um, we were able to look at who was, who was viewing it, who was streaming it, and the demographics of, of those viewers, and they were skewing younger, people in their 30s and 40s. And so I was encouraged by that as well. And, and if you look at, at Tom soul videos on, um, on YouTube, they have millions, millions of views. So um, it, it tells me that there is still an appetite out there for uh, Tom's uh, type of analysis. Um, what he's saying, how he says it, uh, his straightforwardness, and so forth—there's no nonsense approach to these topics—and so um, that that is that is encouraging. Um, but at the same time, um, as we started in this discussion, people like uh, Coates and and Kendi and, and and that crowd right now they 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 do seem to be dominating the narrative on, on a lot of these issues.
0: Well, thank you, Jason, uh, for uh, writing this book and and bringing Tom's soul to life as a person and as ideas to life in a way that uh, everybody can read and appreciate them. And thank you also for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. So I've been speaking with Jason Ronnie, columnist for the Wall Street Journal and author of a new book entitled Maverick. A biography of Thomas Sowell. It's about to be released by Basic Books. I think it's coming out this week as we release this podcast. And he's also the uh, narrator of a film, Common Sense in a Senseless World, which is also about Tom Sowell. So I am uh, very delighted to have had this opportunity to talk with uh, Jason Riley. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern Time.